Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the socialist feminist podcast that neither forgives nor forgets. Today we have Kellen, Zoe, Laura, and Jules. And today we're talking about enemy of the pod, George W. Bush, who we have neither forgiven nor forgotten, unfortunately. Maybe um, you've heard of him. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> um, My concussions you, make me forget a lot, but unfortunately not all of the Bush era. <laughs> you may also remember one of our greatest hits, um, Season of the Bitch versus Ronald Reagan. Iconic iconic we're back to do it again this time we're taking on a different one of the worst presidents of all time um i'm just excited to dive into this with y'all yes yes i wanted to share some personal background um between george bush and i so um i don't know him (laughs) when i was in i think it was ninth grade because i remember the teacher it was like a um social studies class or whatever. I don't remember like why we were doing this, but someone in the class had to like be George Bush. And I absolutely did not choose that. I was like selected, like I had to do it. Um, and this boy in class, Ben like threw a shoe at me, which, okay. In hindsight, like, yes, is a hilarious bit. And I support <laughs> that in the moment. I was like, this boy just threw a fucking shoe at me. <laughs> That's kind of scary. That's incredible. Good when it happens to Bush, bad when it happens to you. As a ninth grader? Oh, I knew about the shoe. Well, well, I forget that my parents were watching the the different kind of media and stuff like that. So Mm. my world. You know, I got it. I was also just like, I mean, you know, I'm not like literally him, right? Like I didn't deserve that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And that goes back to something we talk about often, which is men are, are and boys making bad decisions. Um, I remember his last name too, but I won't dox him today. Not today. I Very mean, kind of you. you know, his heart was probably in the right place. He knew about the show. So true. Well, before we get started, I feel like it's worth opening with some thoughts on why this is kind of a topic on our minds right now. Um, I think obviously most people have noticed that, especially since Trump was elected, there were these kind of murmurings in mainstream media, public discourse, sort of like going back to the quote unquote good old days of the Republican Party. Um, You know, the one that was like marginally more covert about its racism sometimes not even really a lot of the time but um anyway I think like for whatever reason um Bush became kind of a symbol of that and there started to be these attempts to like rehab his image and gloss over how terrible his presidency was I think it's notable that very little of this included any discussion of his actual policies a lot of it focused on like he and Michelle Obama being friends, isn't that cute? Or like those haunting portraits that he paints, um, <laughs> like stuff that has nothing to do with his actual political um, impacts. But we've seen this process happening for a few years now, um, but it really ramped up over the past year. There have been all these major news outlets running headlines like conservative George W. Bush is now too liberal for his party and are we ready to rehabilitate george w bush's reputation spoiler alert, answer is we are no. not yeah <laughs> like, 
Um, classic example of like the question headline and just, yeah, the answer is clearly no. Um, <laughs> also noted demon trapped in a marionette's body. Chris Saliza wrote a CNN op-ed that read, quote, Bush's version of what it means to be a Republican is unrecognizable from where the GOP stands today. Remember that Bush ran as a self-proclaimed compassionate conservative. He repeatedly pushed for comprehensive immigration reform that included a path to citizenship for those in the United States illegally. And perhaps most importantly, he was relentlessly focused on decency and stability in politics and life. Bleh. Unquote. Yeah. Barf sounds to all of that. <laughs> I did just um, find out he is a cancer. So, you know, I'm just, wow. I mean, he is a cancer, but. Extremely upsetting. Yeah. I'm so I, sorry. And not what I would have guessed given his obsession with like his public image, but maybe it does make sense in some way. Mm. Um, anyway. All of this to Answers, say that if you're listening, hmm. yeah, we we need to fix this. We're meeting up to kill Crystalliza later. Um, <laughs> that's a joke for legal reasons. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I I think just like what I have taken away from this is that the press in many cases and just like moderates in general have decided that it's time for Bush to become like a broadly popular figure that we can all agree that we like, um, or at least someone who's not thought of as like one of the most evil people in history. And that is ridiculous and incorrect. So we are here today to talk about all of the reasons why. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for that introduction, Jules. I feel like that set the tone very nicely. Um, So let's dive into it. Uh, It's worth noting that Bush was governor of Texas before he was president. And we could get into that and some of the stuff that he did there, but there's just simply not enough time. Um, So we we all are like, and every one of our paragraphs are like, there's not enough time. time. (laughs) You're going to have to do your own research. Um, yeah, so we're just we're just focused on the presidency today. Um, but before we get into his actual time as president, we do need to talk about how he became president in the first place. Like, if you thought the 2016 election was sketchy, like the election of 2000 would like a word. Ugh, um, yes. I should mention that as an absolute fucking nerd of an eight-year-old in the year 2000, I was very invested in following politics and was thus very excited to learn the outcome of the election, which I guess was like the first one I was really a conscious human being for. Um, and I just have this very vivid memory of my mom waking me up on the moment after the ele- or the the morning after the election. And like the first thing I said when I woke up was who won? And my mom was like, we don't know yet. And I was just like, wait, is that is that allowed? Like, I just, just I, yeah, I I'm sorry, go ahead. strongly relate to the, the nerdy <laughs> child being like, I don't know. I have Definitely. very strong memories at this time of like all of the adults around me being really stressed and being like oh my god like the system doesn't work like (laughs) yeah but I very much relate to that (laughs) yeah I mean part of the the I mean as you know much to eight-year-old Kellen's dismay we had to wait several weeks to find out who won the election of 2000 which um, was for people that don't remember between George W. Bush and certified hottie Al Gore um what Al Gore was not that hot. He was not that hot in, two, in 2000, but he was hot in his early 20s. Look it up, okay? Google I'm Young this up Al. right now. Google no, Young Al Gore. Back. Um, yeah, is he not? He was hot as like a 25 year old. I'm. I'm looking. I just Google searched Al Gore hot. I mean, okay. I 
not my type, but I see what you're saying. I just feel like if anyone else said this, I would be like, no, but it's like Kellen saying a man is hot. Like we have to investigate this. That's true. That's true. I I don't want to, you know, shame Kellen. I also think it is important. He's my type. I'm not saying he's anyone's type. I'm just saying that I am a historian and my professional historical opinion is that Al Gore was hot at age 25. And she's a doctor and we can't argue with that. (laughs) Those are the historical facts. Um, I just also want to note that Al Gore picked Joe fucking Lieberman as his running mate, who like later became an independent. Like uh, apparently Democrats who are seen as like vaguely left-leaning, which Gore was like have to choose undercover Republicans as vice president, which is like how we got Biden in the first place. Like I hate it here. Anyway, Gore and Lieberman won the popular vote, but the electoral college results were super close and basically it all came down to Florida. Um, Keen-eyed observers will have noticed that the governor of Florida and thus the person overseeing elections there was none other than Jeb Bush. Bush. (laughs) George Bush's famously low energy brother, please clap. Um, The network's called it for Bush early, despite a large number of votes still left in Florida's urban centers, um, which were likely to skew heavily for Gore being uncounted. Um, and Fox News actually like was one of the the groups leading the charge on this. And that kind of pushed other networks to call it as well so as to not be seen as behind on their coverage. Um, this early call undermined Gore's credibility in demanding a recall because like a lot of people that were just watching at home were like, wait, didn't they say Bush already won Florida? Um, and the margin, as it turned out, was looking like it was going to be at most a few hundred votes in a state with over 15 million residents. Um, and so with things looking like so tenuous, this Florida Supreme Court did authorize a recount, which started like a hand recount. Um, and that was underway when Bush's team challenged the recount in the Supreme Court, which ruled 5-4 in Bush v. Gore um, to effectively stop the recount. And with the recount halted, I've said recount like 17 times in the last minute, with the recount halted, um, the official results had George W. Bush, quote unquote, winning the state of Florida with just over 500 votes or by just over 500 votes, I should say. Yeah, just... Oh, 15, sorry, go ahead. Just, just 50, 500 votes, 15 million people. That's yeah, unbelievable. Wild. I think just to add on to what you're saying, Helen, also, like, I think that the role of the media in this really can't be underestimated. And also the way that this has impacted and influenced how media coverage of elections still happens. Um, like, obviously, this was a very extreme case with the networks literally calling the election for Bush, even when things still could have gone either way. But I think in general, it does really highlight how weird it is that mainstream television coverage just sort of like guesses who's going to win for a large part of the night um, with like very little votes counted in many cases. And that's just like totally normal. Um, And we like people take that for granted, but it's very unnecessary and confusing. Um, I think it makes people, even people who like are pretty politically engaged, think that those are more like official results when Mm -hmm. things are still completely up in the air. Um, And I feel like it also encourages people to just like take television news as like a 100% accurate source of like political data in a way that it's not at all. Um, And I think like 
this is kind of related to some of the issues we saw in the 2016 election where the New York Times had this like likelihood of winning meter (laughs) that was like swinging wildly back and forth, but like basically was leaning towards Hillary Clinton the whole night and then suddenly just went all the way over to like 70% chance that Trump was going to win. Um, And while we maybe can't solely blame Bush for that, um, although I'm just going to, um, (laughs) the way that that situation was handled in 2000 and the fact that no one was ever like, hey, maybe we should like not do things this way or like come up with a plan for when something like this happens in the future. um, Like that has definitely helped put us on this path to an even more concerning place in terms of like, Recently, we've seen cases of politicians being able to claim they've won an election when all the votes haven't been counted yet, or even when they clearly have not won. (laughs) Mayor Pete. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, That was a (laughs) subtweet. Sorry for tagging um, other subtweets. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Snitch tagging. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's so much we could go into with the, the election of 2000. I didn't even use the words hanging Chad during that whole discussion. But um, anyway, that's the short version, um, the short discussion about how we ended up with one of the worst presidents of all time. And of course, less than nine months into his term, um, Bush was faced with the September 11th um, terrorist attacks, which kicked off a chain of events that literally ended up leaving more than a million people dead in the Middle East, thanks to American intervention. So I think we're going to start talking about his term with that. We are. Yeah. So I wanted to start off um, talking about 9-11 in terms of what it was like for um, Muslim and really all like Arab Americans. Um, A lot of the like responses in the U.S. like still are very centered around like how it affected the country and especially like when when like non-Arab people talk about how traumatic 9-11 was for them I'm just like (laughs) um but you know anyway so I think one thing that I've heard like literally as recently as like 2020 when COVID started is that someone was saying to me like yeah I feel like COVID is one of those things like 9-11 where it really brings the country together like everyone's like working together and I'm like you know that what everyone was like working together to do after 9-11 was like be Islamophobic and like xenophobic right like you were all coming together to like do racism um so Yeah, I guess a little about like what I remember at the time. So I was, I don't know, seven, eight, something like that. I have distinct memory of being in third grade, but my friend who's my same age was like, no, we were in fifth grade or something. And now I don't know. Um, You're definitely not in fifth grade because I was in fourth grade. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I was in third. Okay. But in my mind, I was in first. Like I always was in first grade. And then recently my friend was like, I was in third grade and I was like, we're the same age. (laughs) Anyway, this is what millennials talk about. Where were you on 9-11? I was in third grade. Canon. (laughs) But shortly after when like the airports were having like all the crackdowns and everything. I went to the airport. Um, I don't remember why to go somewhere. And I had this like stuffed animal that I'd had since I was born. And it has like a, um, like bell in it, one of those little jingles and the TSA like confiscated it and literally like ripped it open because they were insistent that there was like, I don't know, a bomb or something in my stuffed animal. And also that happened when I was like 10, I had this very cool straw hat with daisies on it that I got because I was inspired by um, the Olsen twins in It Takes Two. Uh, and 
Yeah. And they also insisted on like taking my hat. Um, That's so, fucked up. Yeah. Worth the stuffed animal noting. one noting. Yeah, for, obviously. Worth noting for listeners that maybe are new or don't know. Um, Zoe has a very like distinctly Arab last name. I do. Important context for what's <laughs> yes. being discussed here. Right. Yes. Um, and I am very white passing, but my dad and a lot of my dad's side of the family are um, like darker than I am, especially like some of my dad's brothers are like very dark to the point that um, when they were kids in like the like 40s 50s people thought that some of his siblings were black and would call them slurs accordingly not that it's okay anyway um but yeah so that's my family but point being back to 9-11 is actually I had like never talked about this with my parents because I was just like so young at the time um but last year I was like talking to my dad and he started talking about like 9-11 and how like for him that really like solidified him identifying as an Arab American because um, of how much other people started like putting that on him. Um, Like for one example, he had written, um, he, he had written for a big publication, I think the New York Times like a few years before this and they called him right after 9-11 and they were like, hi, are you Muslim? And he was like, no. And they were like, okay, we're just like looking for some Muslims to write about 9-11. And he was like, okay. That's also like not what he does. He's not a journalist. He had like literally no, none of his expertise would apply here. It was just like very random. Um, But yeah, my dad was talking about like how um, hard that was like as an adult and as someone who isn't as white passing. And we just kind of like cried together because I don't think he realized that like I had distinct memories when I was a kid. Like I think that, um, they just thought I didn't really know what was happening. So anyway, that was like a good conversation and intense. And um, yeah, just thought that was important. That was my first, like the first thing I wanted to point out. The second thing I would like to point out is that um, Bush did do 9-11 and um, that is that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I just... (laughs) want to make sure also that people know that Osama bin Laden was not some rando. For nearly two decades leading up to 9-11, Osama bin Laden was financed and trained by the United States. He was seen as the answer to Washington's prayers in the 1980s as the U.S. government was working towards a proxy war with the Soviets. So much of George W. Bush's reign was influenced by the reign of Reagan, George H.W. Bush, his dad, Donald Rumsfeld, and Dick Cheney in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. So hypothetically, whether or not you believe that Bush did 9-11, which he did, and it is xenophobic to disagree with me, um, jet fuel cannot melt steel beams. Look it up, sheeple. Anyway, um, (laughs) but we're going to talk about the response to it. You can believe what you want. You can go on the internet. You can watch In Plain Sight, the documentary. Everything's right there for you. Literally in plain sight, people. Plain spelled like a plane. It's a a good one. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I told Kellen earlier that I was going to do this. And I would just like to say that this is kind of a bit. And I don't know at what point the bit stops and what I think begins. And that's for you all to think about. It's the real mystery. 
so true. I wish I couldn't I couldn't find this meme, but I feel like there's one of those galaxy brain memes that's like the first tier is like Bush did 9-11 and the second tier is like, oh no, like the real reason like he didn't, and then the last tier is like it actually doesn't matter because effectively it is as though he did like, you know, the ways that he benefited from it are like yeah. he might as well have done it. It really like, you know, did he, well, did he not? That is a perfect segue. <laughs> Yes. We can't say we at Season of the Bitch make no official claim. We're just putting things out there for you to think about and <laughs> just analyze. Asking questions. <laughs> um, Kellen is face palming because these are not historical facts, according to Dr. Kellen. <laughs> I'm just, I think there are lots of reasons that, you know, Osama bin Laden might have wanted to attack the United States without George Bush helping him. Um, but again, you know, who's to say, unlike Al Gore being a, a certified hottie in his 20s, this is neither direction is a historical fact. We just don't know. We just don't know. Yeah. So um, following 9-11, one of the major um, reactions in terms of the government was passing the Patriot Act, which also is just like literally the most fascist name for an act. Truly. Um, just feel like they weren't even really like masking that one. But anyway, it passed um, pretty hastily 45 days after the attacks, um, and it greatly increased the government's ability to use surveillance on U.S. citizens. And what it did essentially was turn um, just like any citizen, but mostly like Muslim and other um, Arab people into suspects. And it also legalized what are what were called like sneak and peek searches, which allowed cops to conduct um, secret searches of people's homes and offices. And unsurprisingly, those searches ended up being 76% drug related and less than 1% were actually related to any like terrorist activity, whatever that like term even means in this context. Yeah. Less than 1% as they reported it. So like, so like none. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, also, I think like with most law enforcement activity these practices weren't even very good at doing the thing that they were supposedly doing um under the patriot act the fbi could issue this new type of warrant called a national security letter um and i was just looking at some of the numbers about this there's one statistic that's like between 2003 and 2006 they issued more than 192,000 of these letters but all of that only led to one conviction of terrorist activity And that conviction would have happened even without the information obtained through the letter in that case. Um, So not that it would be better if more people were getting convicted, but I still think it's telling that even with this like hyper extreme degree of surveillance, the government was still not actually finding that much activity that could be used to convict anyone of a crime. Um, I think the main result of this was really just like an extremely expanding state surveillance apparatus. Yeah. So I wanted to read part of um, the speech that he gave when the Patriot Act or not. It wasn't from the speech. It's from um, like the press release of when the Patriot Act was signed. But I was doing this on my work computer earlier, which wouldn't let me copy paste it. And now I cannot find that same document. So we're once again ruining our lives. But the part I wanted to share was um, there's a couple of parts. So one part was that he was um, 
essentially saying like we have proof that there were terrorists in the u.s like working with terrorists abroad and i texted the communist earlier i was just like he was the terrorist in the united states um <laughs> the call was coming from inside the house but on a more serious note i did want to read just this one part of or yeah a little part from the like speech that he gave after where he's essentially like launching the war on terrorism um and he says they hate what they see right here in this chamber a democratically elected government LOL, based on what Kellen just explained about how that election went down. Um, <laughs> their leaders are self-appointed. They hate our freedoms. And then um, later in the same speech, he says, we've seen their kind before. They're the heirs of all the murderous ideologies of the 20th century. By sacrificing human life to serve their radical visions, by abandoning every value except the will to power, they follow in the path of fascism, Nazism, and totalitarianism. And they will follow the path all the way to where it ends in history's unmarked grave of discarded lies. So first oh of all, God. what? And this is like, you can find this online. Um, this is just like a transcript in the Washington Post. But um, this whole thing is just him being like, uh, trying to justify like why there is like this war on terrorism and just being like, these people are bad. Like they're the heirs of all the murderous ideologies. And like, I mean, people in the U S like really believe this. I had a lot of people that would ask if like my family, like were terrorists in like a very, like they would just be like, Oh, do you still have a family there? Like, are they terrorists? Oh my God. <laughs> As if that was just like, you know, like, Oh, is anyone in your family? Like, I don't, I can't even think of something else that you would ask someone that would be appropriate. To be honest. <laughs> no, I no. couldn't think of any analogy. <laughs> also just LOL at the idea that under the, in the, within the context of the Patriot Act, you would be like, oh yeah, I actually have a few terrorists in my family. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, so many times on like airport searches, they'll be like, um, do you like have any relatives like there? And then they'll be like, did they help you pack your bags? And I'm like, first of all, I just told you that, like, no, I don't have relatives there anymore. They all, like, moved oh, to the U.S. Oh, my God. And just, like, yeah. So, oh my God. anyway, like, would recommend reading the whole um, thing if you want to gouge your eyes out. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, I hate all of that. Um yeah, I mean, just thinking a little bit about the lasting impacts of this as well, like, I think most listeners are probably aware that, like, the U.S. government has always surveilled people it views as a threat, um, and that's often done illegally. But this really was a big moment in, like, that being expanded to something that was considered legal. Um, and I think that that's concerning just because as these sorts of like searches become seen as legal, that also means like the evidence and the information obtained can actually be used in court cases. It's more likely to actually be used to put people in jail and detention facilities. Um, and it also just kind of signals a move towards like this being considered socially okay um, increasingly. And I think the Patriot Act really set us on this like horrible path of unchecked surveillance um, before Bush left office in 2008, he also signed into law the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act amendments. Um, and this was the change that gave legal cover to the NSA surveillance that most of us became aware of under Obama in 2013, when Edward Snowden leaked documents that showed the government had been using this to spy on citizens' private communications. Um, so this was kind of a trend 
in the Bush presidency of just this like increasing legalization and like out in the open being like, we are just going to surveil people. Even if we have no evidence that they've done anything that we're even saying is a crime. Yeah. Um, Another basically immediate reaction to 9-11 was of course the U S invasion of Afghanistan. And we wanted to talk about that too. Um, That invasion was much less controversial than the war in Iraq, which we'll get to as well. Um, because it seemed to a lot of people to be this like logical response to an attack on American soil. Um, Obviously it wasn't as though Afghanistan as a country attacked the United States. And like, interestingly, despite like basically all the hijackers and Osama bin Laden himself being from Saudi Arabia, that country was never invaded real head scratcher there. Mm. Um, Mm. (laughs) Anyway, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan less than a month after 9-11, um, after Bush demanded that Osama bin Laden be extradited by the Taliban, who had taken over the country in the aftermath of the Soviet withdrawal after their decades-long failed invasion, in case that sounds familiar. Um And, like, predictably, the Taliban were like, no, we're not going to do that. They had, like, a pretty good relationship with um, bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And so the U.S. called on its NATO allies, which, um, you know, under the NATO charter are supposed to um, all come to the aid of a country if it's attacked. Um, And this was a war that was widely supported by the quote-unquote international community, by which, of course, I mean leaders of wealthy white Western countries. Um, Uh, And so began a 20-year war that, as we all know, didn't end even when bin Laden was killed in 2011, thus completing the, um, you know, stated reason for beginning the war. The Afghan government that was put in place by the Americans and their allies was never particularly strong or robust. And as we know, it did collapse in summer 2021. We have an episode on Afghanistan that you can go back and listen to if you're interested in this. Um, it's estimated that roughly a quarter of a million people died in in this conflict. So, uh, just horrendous really all around. Um, and that's, you know, like I said, we have another episode all about this, but that's a little brief piece of, uh, little taste of, of the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna talk about the invasion of Iraq now, um, And like Callum was saying, while some people understood the invasion of Afghanistan as something more or less logical for the United States, even though, again, um, the the aggressors from 9-11 were primarily from Saudi Arabia, but the United States would never wage war against such a lucrative state, um, most people around the world and country were against the invasion of Iraq in 2003. It's important to note again that the U.S.'s connection to Iraq didn't start in the early 2000s. And while we're focusing on Bush, the invasion of Iraq honestly feels more like Donald Rumsfeld's agenda that George W. is just basically happy to go along with, following right in his daddy's and Reagan's footsteps. So in late 1983, the United States started supplying Saddam Hussein with weapons, including chemical weapons, which are said to be the direct supply of the now infamous 1988 gassing of the Kurds. There's more to unpack there, but I don't want to spend too much time on the history pre-Bush, but it's important to know that similar to Afghanistan and similar to all U.S. invasions, the United States is directly responsible for the crimes of Saddam Hussein. So to then call attention to Hussein's 
atrocities in the aftermath of 9-11 was just a hypocritical charade. The United States has always had an interest in Iraq because of its ties to oil. And so, on the morning of September 12, 2001, Donald Rumsfeld reacted to the World Trade Center and Pentagon attacks by declaring to Bush's cabinet that the United States should immediately attack Iraq. It didn't matter then or now that Iraq had no connection to al-Qaeda or the 9-11 attacks. The neoconservatives, annoyed that the United States merely owned the pumps and not the oil, were basically jonesing to dominate the world, particularly as it relates to oil, and felt that facts could be molded to fit their designs, which, as we know, ended up being true. But of course they had nothing to do with it. Exactly. (laughs) Beginning in late 2002 and continuing after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, large-scale protests against the Iraq War were held in many cities worldwide, often coordinated to occur simultaneously around the world. Between January 3rd and April 12th, 2003, 36 million people across the globe took part in almost 3,000 protests against the Iraq War. The official reasoning that the Bush administration cited for invading Iraq was that they had weapons of mass destructions, or WMDs. However, very few people who knew about foreign policy and national security actually believed that narrative. But that's really what it was, a narrative, and a simple enough one that many people in the United States believed that that was what was going on. Like, that was definitely what my parents were saying. People who weren't necessarily anti-war, but were anti-the war in Iraq, were confused why the U.S. was going after a seemingly baseless claim about weapons of mass destruction when other nations, such as North Korea, were known to actually have these weapons. If you had watched any of the debates leading up to the 2020 election, you'll know that this is still a point of contention among politicians. Bernie Sanders repeatedly called out Joe Biden for voting for the invasion of Iraq because there were no actual hard facts or reasons to invade. Yeah. So just in terms of like thinking about the trajectory towards the war and the kinds of things that were circulating, the kinds of um, supposed intelligence that was circulating, I think a really important thing to look at is Colin Powell's um, February 5th, 2003 speech before the United Nations. Um, Powell revealed a few years ago that the speech he presented actually came from Dick Cheney's office. Um, And as Laura alluded to, Uh, We now know that Cheney, like Rumsfeld, was gunning for a war with Iraq actually even before 9-11 and that he saw those attacks as an opening to allow for quote unquote democratization efforts um, throughout the Middle East. Anyway. Powell claimed, according to what he called, quote, hard evidence that Saddam Hussein and Iraq were developing weapons of mass destruction, in other words, nuclear weapons. Um, The evidence that was provided was, um, in some cases, exaggerated, in some cases, fabricated entirely, which Powell recognized publicly before his death. Um, And in some ways, the speech itself isn't that historically significant. Like, you know, Bush was going to invade invade Iraq regardless, but It also and, you know, it also didn't spur any additional international support. The U.S. went in almost alone to to um, Iraq, but it did help build the public case domestically within the United States for the war. And there were a lot of people who just like could not believe that someone like Powell or a group like the CIA would lie to the American people or, you know, the entire world. Yeah, big time. 
Why why would the United States lie? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. When people don't believe certain political conspiracy theories, I'm like, now we trust the government? Okay. Yeah, I'm just here to add. I'm just here to add a little fun color. (laughs) No, happy sad season, y'all. Um, I wanted to making these dark topics fun. Yeah, I want to take a minute to talk about the key people in the Bush administration and their connection to big oil, because this is not only critical to understanding the drive to have control in the middle in the Middle East, but also the anti-environmental and head in the sand approach to climate change. And Bush's motives for doing 9-11. Exactly. Um, George W. himself is a failed oilman. He tried to have an oil business in West Texas and fucked it up just like he fucks everything up. Dick Cheney, the vice president, was the former CEO of Halliburton, which is the largest oil services company in the world. Condoleezza Rice, the national security advisor, was a former member of the Chevron board of directors and has an oil tanker named after her. Don Evans, the secretary of commerce, was ex-CEO and chair of Tom Brown, Inc., a billion-dollar oil and gas company. Gail Norton, secretary of the interior, was the former lawyer for Delta Petroleum. And Andrew Card, chief of staff, was the former chief lobbyist for General Motors. Yeah, and you've also got Dick Cheney himself, who is like deeply tied to Halliburton, he used to be the CEO of Halliburton, um, which is an oil field servicing company. Um, it's all just extremely fucked. Yeah. So for more information on all the things that we spoke about here, I highly recommend the book by journalist Amy Goodman, Exception to the Rulers. Yeah, I just wanted to mention in terms of like the views of the war um, at the time because I think people now of course like when we're looking at the um debate it's like oh right there was no actual evidence at the time but like in that moment when there was all this like propaganda a lot of people did not feel the way that they like probably think they would but anyway I digress um my parents unsurprisingly were very against the Iraq war but their friends who um like the area I grew up in a lot of my parents friends are also like progressive like hippie types like um whatever, I've talked about my parents' politics, but um, a lot of their friends said that they were like, were like, oh, well, you're just pacifist. Like, that's why you're against it, which also isn't true. My dad's very radical. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. I feel like at least in my memory, which is probably not fully accurate because I was pretty young, like I felt like a lot of the adults around me were pretty against the war. Um, and I think part of that might just be like, the area of LA that I was in and like the school I went to and stuff like Bush was just seen as such a symbol of evil that it was kind of like part of that like he was bad therefore this war was bad um and I should say like really Cheney was seen as a symbol of evil Bush was more seen as kind of like a willing idiot but um (laughs) anyway um I think that's part of why it's so surprising to me to see Bush's media rehab job happening now um I feel like people, especially I would say like wealthy and or educated progressives really hated Bush. Like before Trump, I feel like he was the guy that was like embarrassing us on the national stage supposedly. And like, which, you know, not that we like need an extra thing to do that, but it's just like interesting that he's now being put forward as some kind of like respectable, proper guy when like during his presidency, I think 
a good amount of Democrats and progressives viewed him as a total clown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, really unsurprisingly, both my parents were pro-Bush. Um, <laughs> we were a pro-Bush household. Uh, and sometimes I even surprise myself with gratitude for how I am the way I am today. <laughs> Don't know how it happened. So grateful that it happened. Whew. We're all grateful. That yeah, it happened. we are too. <laughs> yes. Um, so the next major event we wanted to talk about, um, during the Bush administration is Hurricane Katrina. So Hurricane Katrina was a large and destructive Category 5 Atlantic hurricane that caused over 1,800 fatalities in late August 2005. When Katrina hit, the economically secure drove out of town, checked into hotels, and called their insurance companies. The 120,000 people in New Orleans without cars who depended on the state to organize their evacuation waited for help that did not arrive, making desperate SOS signs or rafts out of their refrigerator doors. The storm exposed the consequences of neoliberalism's lies and mystifications in a single locale all at once, wrote the political scientist and New Orleans native Adolf Reed Jr. And don't quote, don't cancel us for quoting Adolf Reed people when he's right, he's right, okay? That was a, it's a quote that we needed, that I felt it's real. Anyway, the facts of this exposure are well known. From the levees that were never repaired to the underfunded public transit system that failed, to the fact that the city's idea of disaster preparedness was literally passing out DVDs telling people that if a hurricane came, they should get out of town. Wow, the early aughts, man. Just handing out CDs with a message. Yeah. Exactly. They were like, do you want a floppy disk that says leave now? (laughs) (laughs) Then there was the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, a laboratory for the Bush administration's vision of government run by corporations. In the summer of 2004, more than a year before Katrina hit, the state of Louisiana put in a request to FEMA for funds to develop an in-depth contingency plan for a powerful hurricane. The request was was refused. Disaster mitigation, advanced government measures to make the effects of disasters less devastating, was one of the programs gutted under Bush. Just as the U.S. occupation authority in Iraq turned out to be an empty shell, when Katrina hit, so did the U.S. federal government at home. In fact, it was so thoroughly absent that FEMA could not seem to locate the New Orleans Superdome, where 23,000 people were stranded without food or water, despite the fact that the world media had been there for days. Kanye West, as people may remember, um, famously went rogue on live TV, taking the opportunity that was provided him by a television fundraiser, I believe it was Mike Myers, which is a very 2005 thing, um, to tell the nation, quote, George Bush doesn't care about Black people. Don't cancel us for quoting Kanye when he's right, he's right. Um <laughs> Worth noting that New Orleans is a majority African-American city, and in 2005, it was roughly two-thirds Black. Um, Just to, you know, like, throw some more numbers at you, 
New Orleans was home to almost half a million people before Katrina. And then a year later in 2006, less than half of those residents remained in the city. Um, its population then was estimated about 230,000 people. More than 175,000 of the over 250,000 people who left were Black. At least 75,000 of those um, Black residents never came back to the city. Um, and New Orleans is down now from roughly 66% African-American in 2005 to 59%. Um, and to quote a piece from 538, don't cancel us for using Nate Silver's data. When he's right, he's right. Wow, we are defending a lot of men tonight on Six of the Bitch, besides George Bush. <laughs> um, this piece I read about the demographic change in New Orleans um, said, uh, Quote, it isn't just that there are fewer Black New Orleanians, their place in the city's economic fabric has fundamentally changed. African Americans long accounted for most of the city's poor, but before the storm, they also made up a majority of its middle class. After Katrina, the patterns changed. The poor are still overwhelmingly Black, but the affluent and middle classes are increasingly white. And um, I think Laura wants to talk about some of the economic developments that made that that happen yeah the the absolute neoliberal hellscape (laughs) on september 13th 2005 just 14 days after the levees were breached right-wing think tank the heritage foundation hosted a meeting of capitalist ideologues and republican lawmakers They came up with a list of, quote, pro-free market ideas for responding to Hurricane Katrina and high gas prices, unquote, which included 32 policies in all, and all of them packaged as hurricane relief. The first three items were automatically suspend Davis Beacon prevailing wage laws in disaster areas, a reference to the law that required federal contractors to pay a living wage. So this allowed them to not pay a living wage. Uh, The next one was, quote, make the entire affected area a flat tax-free enterprise zone. And finally, quote, make the entire region an economic competitiveness zone, um, which basically is comprehensive tax incentives and waiving of regulations. So another demand called for giving parents vouchers to use at charter schools, which in turn ended up decimating public schools in the area. And all of these measures were announced by Bush within the week. He was eventually forced to reinstate the labor standards, although they were largely ignored by contractors. Honestly, there's so much to go into with the hyper-privatization that has happened in response to the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina, and there's not enough time for us to detail everything that happened, but suffice it to say, Bush's ties to oil just ran his entire presidency. In the wake of Katrina, the Heritage Foundation literally called on Congress to repeal environmental regulations on the Gulf Coast. And give permission for oil refineries in the United States and green light drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which was just like a massive blow to the environmental world. Um, 
And all of these measures would increase greenhouse gas emissions, yet they were immediately championed by the president under the guise of responding to the Katrina disaster, because that is some sort of logic. Um, And I highly recommend journalist Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine for a more in-depth look at that issue. Yeah, um, I also wanted to talk briefly about Bush's education policy, because I think he really, like, created a lot of the problems that we're still dealing with today in terms of lack of funding for public education, um, most notably through the No Child Left Behind Act. So this was a bipartisan bill, but the Bush administration played a big role in like drafting it and getting it through Congress. And Bush's big talking points around this bill had to do with the fact that America was supposedly falling behind other wealthy countries in terms of educational success metrics. Um, So rather than trying to help students who were clearly not receiving enough support or teachers who didn't have enough time or schools that didn't have enough funding, this law introduced additional measures to surveil and punish schools and by extension students who were achieving below average results. Um, So the main thing that this law did was require schools receiving federal funding, which includes all public schools, to test students every year from third through eighth grade on their English and math skills. And if too many students fell below what was called proficiency for their age group, um, then the school would start to face different restrictions. One being that high performing students would then be allowed to transfer to other quote unquote better schools. Um, Of course, the better schools are largely just the better funded schools. So essentially, these policies were punishing the schools and students who are already most underfunded and most struggling. Um, And once again, we don't have time to fully get into this, but because schools are funded largely by property taxes, this is also very tied to redlining and racist housing policy in the U.S., in addition, of course, to the inherently racist history of segregation in public schools. Um, So some schools in certain states also started cutting teacher salaries and department budgets to try to motivate teachers to get students to pass these tests. And then if they didn't do well enough, they would face budget or salary cuts, um, which again, generally led to the most struggling schools having even more programs cut or reduced. Um, And schools that continued not to meet the federal guidelines could also be shut down or, and maybe people saw this coming, privatized and turned into charter schools. Mm -hmm. So there's some evidence that student performance improved while this law was in effect, but because these skills were measured differently under the law than before it, it's kind of hard to compare. Um, And also doing well on a standardized test obviously doesn't mean that you're receiving a better education overall. Um, In a lot of cases, teachers said that these policies forced them to teach the test in a way that actively worsened education. So overall, it was a terrible policy that has had long lasting harms on the educational system that we're really still dealing with today. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. um, I just wanted to add to that. There were also incentives involved that um, for students with disabilities essentially incentivized schools to like prove that um, if they had uh, programs for students with disabilities, that those students were either like improving or like getting better in terms of their disability, which of course led to not actual like good care um, for those students. There was also like this big ableist component of just like, as Jules was explaining, just like wanting, having these very arbitrary like guides of what means that students are like doing well or like receiving good education. Yeah, totally. Yeah. 
we are running low on time. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that we're not going to be able to cover, um, including a lot of like Bush's economic policies, for example, like the tax cuts, um, the time that he was like, what if we privatized social security? But luckily that didn't actually end up happening. That was a big Bush plan. Um, but it is worth talking about the fact that he went out with a bang. And by that, I mean, he concluded his time in office with the great recession of 2008. Um, you heard of it. <laughs> Uh, the economic, this economic collapse, uh, was precipitated by the collapse of the housing bubble, which in turn was prompted by a bunch of predatory lending on the part of big banks, as well as a bunch of speculation on people's debt, which was like packaged in new, innovative and terrible ways. Um, if some point, at some point, like if y'all are interested, we could even do an episode about this because it's super interesting, but also takes a while to explain in any depth. Um, Part of but my, briefly, the yeah. Patriot Act did allow one of the things they could surveil was like bank accounts mm-hmm. um, at that time. So that was part of the like further surveillance of people's like debt and finances. Mm. Yeah, there's um this may be like one of those things where it's like I was an econ tutor in college and so just learned way more about this than I should. But if anybody ever wants to talk about what derivatives are, happy to do it. Um Anyway, um, something important to know is that a big part of this was, um, you know, a result of trends towards deregulation, which we can't actually blame solely on Bush as much as we'd like to. Um, That's, you know, the neoliberal agenda. And we can trace the deregulation of the banking sector, at least back to Reagan. Um, Clinton also had a role in this. He signed the repeal of Glass-Steagall into law in 1999, which removed a lot of consumer protections that were put in place by FDR during the Great Depression and which limited the kinds of transaction banks could take part in. So again, it's just, it's too much to get into with the time that we have, but suffice it to say that like, we know capitalism is bad and unfettered capitalism, even worse. Um, Wild. Bush, yeah. Bush oversaw the collapse of three major U.S. Um, financial institutions, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and Merrill Lynch, as well as massive declines in economic output, the loss of astronomical personal wealth, um, you know, uh, spikes in unemployment. Like, anyway, I just want to conclude by saying that, um, like Obama, who came after him, Bush's response to the crisis was primarily to try to help corporations and banks rather than the people who are losing their homes, savings, and jobs. Classic. 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 That concludes our um, survey of George Bush's time in office. However, we are not done yet. We are not Throw done. it over to Zoe. <laughs> because we would not be done until we completed what I'm referring to as Girl Boss Corner. If you listen to the Reagan episode, <laughs> Girl you Boss know. Girl Boss Corner. You know that we dedicated a segment to Nancy and we would be remiss if we did not speak of Laura Bush. And I would just like to tell everyone that I was calling her Barbara Bush this entire time, even to my co-host. No one corrected me. I then looked her You couldn't imagine a Laura being, but in this Literally, I was like, I think I blocked out that her name was Laura because how dare she. But (laughs) also, okay, Bush's mom and daughter are named Barbara. So like American dynasties are fucking weird. I, for a second, I thought that um, but George Bush Sr. and his wife, Barbara, were like cousins because this headline was like, 
Barbara Bush, first daughter. And I was like, wait, what is happening? They're related. <laughs> this is wild. But no, um, there's just more than one Barbara Bush. But neither of them were married to George. Laura was. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> I <hate to> see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have much time, but I just wanted to get into a couple things and what she was doing at the time. So she was actually not thrilled when Bush decided to run for presidency because um According to sources, she was just like pretty quiet and didn't want as much of a public facing persona. So she wanted to adopt like as much of a quote nonpartisan issue to focus on. And um, that's why she chose literacy because her background was in early education and um, working in libraries. And so although she really didn't take as much of a public facing role as some of our other girl boss first ladies like Nancy and our girl Hill, um, she was actually had a lot of um push behind the no child left behind act since those were her like expertise but yeah she didn't kind of speak out about it the way that like nancy talked about um just say no drugs drugs so that was one of her things she also focused on quote empowering girls and women in afghanistan and we talked about this a little on our recent ish episode about that um But this move was so crucial to gaining support for continued violence in the Middle East that in November of 2001, so shortly after 9-11, she was the first person ever who was not a president to deliver the weekly presidential radio address because, like, they really felt like they needed a woman um, to be like, oh, we have to do this for the sake of women. And, like, we talked about that reasoning a lot on the Afghanistan episode, so I won't go into it now, but um, they used our girl, Laura. And I also thought it was worth noting um, that although George Bush was advocating for overturning Roe, so if you think that is a new idea that happened under Trump, absolutely not. Um, Republicans have been gunning for that for years, and Bush was one of them. But Laura did publicly say that she was against the idea. Not that we're like patting her on the back for that, but I did find it interesting that she publicly was like, no, I support abortion. And she also publicly said that she um, supported gay marriage. Okay. Um, I just want to say that the true dialectic is that while Zoe was forced to pretend to be George Bush in high school, I was forced to pretend to be Barbara Bush in middle school cotillion. We would have been an adorable Bush couple. (laughs) Gay Bush couple. I was also very upset about it. The premise, actually, this is the premise was that I was in cotillion, which is a disaster in the first place, but you know, where you learn manners and how to set a table and dance and stupid shit. Um, and we were learning how to introduce people to each other. And I can't remember, but you're either supposed to introduce the more important person to the less important person or vice versa, but it requires you to rank people in terms of importance in your head. So we were doing these exercises where somebody would get called, two people would get called to the front. The teacher would be like, okay, like, you know, this is Zoe. And like, this is, um, you know, the governor of North Carolina, like who's introduced to whom. So I got called up and she was like, like, this is Barbara Bush. And I was like, fuck that. And then the other person was the queen of England. And she was like, which person would be introduced to who? And it caused this massive firestorm because all of these like, you know, North Carolina sixth graders couldn't <laughs> agree over who was more important, the queen of England or Barbara Bush. Wow. Kellen was part of a girl boss show. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> you love to see it. Um, but you know who is really important is all of the co-hosts of Season of the Bitch. And if you want to support us, you can introduce us 
to people um, by sending them our episodes. You can also support us by, um, you know, signing up for our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at season of the B. You can send us an email at season of the B at gmail.com. As always, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, only if you have good things to say. Um, <laughs> I think that about covers it. It's sad. She's in and saying anything rude about us is a crime. Absolutely true. So true. Even more so than usual. Even more so than usual. <laughs> I have zero patience for it. Yeah. <laughs> so go on Patreon, follow us on Patreon, and while you're on the internet, um, Google Young Al Gore hot. No. And then Google <laughs> Bush did 9-11. <laughs> <laughs> and then Google puppies wearing hats. Okay. Love you so much. Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the bitch. <laughs>